Hey everyone, this is Augustus Cho. Welcome to part two of our previous episode. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. That was uh, chapter one, and we'll go to chapter two. We're going to talk about your singing career now. In 1987, you had your first recording with uh, Cutting Records. 86. Out of control, right? 86. 86, 86 of, yeah. So how did that singing career begin for you? They're going to be really mad at me for saying this, but I'm going to say it. Okay? Sure. Because that's who I am. Okay, so as a kid running around trying to get a deal... I was focused on the major labels. I didn't even know there was a thing called independent label at all. I didn't know what it was. And when I first found out, I was like, keep me far away from them because they have no money. And I need to be a star. And in order for me to be a star, I need capital. Uh, so I was working uh, with Capri. Eventually I would meet Carlos Berrios. Carlos knew someone by the name of Aldo Marin who had a label called Cutting Records. And while we were recording Out of Control, uh, I went in to do the last of the vocals, of the background vocals, along with an, a phenomenal vocalist named Jimmy Tunnel, who at the time was doing background vocals for everybody, uh, Monet and everybody else. Anyway, um, while I'm recording, a guy comes up to me. He was young at the time. I think he was probably 1920. His brother owned the label he ran it. They were, they were trying to um, leave him something when he got older. And it was, he loved music and he was a DJ, this guy, Aldo. So he walks up to me and he says, hey, so welcome to Cutting Records. Uh, here's your contract. Make sure you sign it uh, so we could release the record. And I'm like, say again? He said, out of control is ours. Uh, you're now our artist. And I was like, whoa, what are you? I'm cutting records independent. I said, no, 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 no. I'm not signing to an independent. I'm only signing to a major. You don't have the money to make me a star. Basically, I got ganged up on by the producer, the label, the what, whoever was there, they were like, you can't do this. I already sold the record to them like that had anything to do with me. He sold the record without my consent to an independent label and convinced me that I had to do it. So I go home to my mom and my dad and I say, this is what's happening. They're happy that I'm being offered a deal. So they go to the family lawyer <laughs> who's, whose focus was, I don't know, insurance, right? <laughs> And he looks it over and he says, well, it looks like a standard contract to me. As far as I'm concerned, a lawyer looked at it, said it was good. I signed it. It would turn out to be one of the worst contracts in the history of music industry contracts. Yeah. I was going to be there till the very end. And they owned everything, including my firstborn child. Thanks you, to Carlos Ferriero. Yeah. Right? You and, and was, number, a number yeah. of other artists that began like that. Sad. Yes. So sad because to this day, 
And I'll say it here for everyone to hear. Those songs that you listen to, that everyone's heard, that I'm very proud of, Out of Control, Give Me Back My Heart, Loving You Like Crazy, Now That You're Gone, Temptation, Whispers, on and on the album. I haven't received a, uh, 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 I haven't received royalty statements from Aldo Marina cutting in 25 years. Not that I ever got a royalty statement before that, but at least when I was in Atlantic Records, they gave me a royalty statement because it was a split between the two. I was signed to both of them. But to this day, mechanicals, which are super illegal to keep from an artist because it's based on my voice on a record, I don't get that. I don't get my writers. I don't get any of that. And luckily, um, uh, through other avenues, I'm able to get my streaming money. And so I tell people, stream, stream, stream. Um, He licenses this music all over the world, Augustus, as you know. He gets paid for it. He gets licensing fees, all the fees, all the money that he gets that he's supposed to pay me a a portion of, nothing. And I've tried on several occasions to get lawyers. I've I've had, I think, I don't know, eight lawyers in a 25-year period, all of which get to the point where they say, listen, litigation is incredibly important and you absolutely hands down would win this case. Problem is that they wear you out and take their time with paperwork so that they, they make you run out of money is what it boils down to. However, the, the, I, I, for Aldo's sake, the one thing he wants to pray to his God about is that I never come into real money again because guess where we're going? There you go. <laughs> well, guess where we're going? Every dog <laughs> has its day. And I said this to him, Pre-COVID, January 2020, I went to see him. I said, you want to make a deal with me? Because uh, when I do my own stuff, with God's blessing, if it makes enough noise for us to be in court, that's where we're going. And then I'm taking everything so that I can give back artists who were robbed as well their stuff. But there is such thing as karma. What goes around comes around. Oh, yes. And I see it all the time. I see it in the people that do wrong in this business and their illnesses. And it, it breaks my heart because I, I, I'm able to have empathy for even the worst of them. And this is, and this is God knows, you know, and, and yet, and I would say to them for years, listen, you don't get away with this stuff. This stuff has a way of coming back. It really does. And I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it with my own eyes, you know, yeah. and here I am. By the grace of God, this many years later, I'm proud of myself. I feel good. I think I look good. And, and, and that's because I don't actively go after people to do terrible things to them. I just don't. I don't. It's, it's not worth it. Yeah, stress is not worth it. Worth. No, God, no, no. And also, dealing with people like that makes you appreciate someone like Ruben of Nana Music. Yes. And he yes. knows all of these people. So he completely understands where I'm coming from and what I've been through. It's incredible. Oh, when I read your uh, statement with Ruben, I, I, I can read between the lines. And uh, <laughs> I understood awesome. what That's you're awesome. trying to say. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, let's get uh, in, putting that aside. When I look at your uh, video, someone took a video of you singing out of control. Yes. Probably in the uh, streets of Bronx somewhere. Oh, no, it's in, uh, in uh, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, okay, yeah. You look so young. <laughs> I know. You know what? And the other thing is, you look like you weigh 98 pounds. <laughs> well, no, no, I weigh a little bit more than that. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know, Augustus. I think God has really blessed me. Um, look, we all get older and things change and they they fall into different places. <laughs> you know, your body changes, how you I'm feel. not talking about now, but when I see that video, you look like you weigh 98 pounds on that oh, video. Yeah, I think <laughs> I was. If I'm honest with you, I've always been heavy, like muscle heavy. I don't know. I was 120 pounds. You didn't look it that way at all. You look so thin. Tiny. I mean, they're very tiny women in my family on my mother's side. But when you try to pick them up, they're like, (laughs) yeah. My my niece, the first time I met my niece, she was this little spaghetti thing. And she was 10 years old. And I attempted to lift her when I hugged her. Oh, my God. And my husband used to say, this is what I try to tell you about you. You are so heavy. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Yeah, I was I was tiny, 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 but yeah. weightful. But you know that that the song had a real nice beat. Um, I was actually surprised that it, that kind of sophisticated rhythm and song came out of such a young person. Oh my goodness! I think it was quite impressive for that age. Well, firstly, thank you, and I will say that when I met Carlos Barrios, our first meeting was in a recording studio called Sync Sound. And I don't know, he was he was very young, probably right out of his teens at this point. And they happened to be editing Thriller for Michael Jackson there. That's where they were editing the film. And so what you hear a lot of the uh, frightening, scary, incredible sounds in Out of Control were from the Thriller. Ah, okay. <laughs> Hey. It was a long time ago, right? But I heard nothing. I heard nothing. Nothing. However, Carlos, to his credit, um, his mixing abilities, his DJ abilities, his—you know—he was known for his beats, and so all of that stuff that you hear, I always thought of it as a genius that he had that he simply did not appreciate because he was too busy trying to be the artist himself or a director or whatever. And he's, he's good at everything he does, but I always thought that he would have gotten Grammys for, for the ability that he had to edit and, 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 you know, put sounds and music and things together. He was the difference between a good record and a hit record. I will always say that. About that. That's, that's probably very true. Having a good producer. Now, when you first recorded your song and you went into the studio, working with engineers or producers is very different from performing. So what did you realize when you were uh, recording in the studio? I am, a, you know, I like to consider myself a student of life and everything that comes my way. So unless I am terribly not interested, um, uh, I tend to bite down and inhale everything. So one of the wonderful things that happened is that when I walked in and I was in a real world of music, not somebody's basement where they had a couple of pieces of equipment, but a console that was worth $140,000, a million buttons, and all these gadgets and things that we needed to do to make this sound like a record that could compete in the world. Um, Yeah, I was in heaven. I, unlike other artists, Um, When I went to the studio and they were building from the bottom up, I sat and if it took four days, 
four weeks, I was going to sleep there and I was going to wake up there and maybe go home to shower and change and bring some clothing and food. And, but I would be there from beginning to end. And they were always so fascinated. And it's the reason why I was able to, without the ability to actually play any, any real instruments, I'm able to compose songs from beginning to end in my head. And I'm able to then play enough to get all the basic ideas down. And then I tell them, this is what it sounds like. This is what it does. I, I hire a guitar person. I hire, uh, uh, you know, a horn, whatever, a violin string. And I tell them exactly what to do. And I'm able to do that because of my experience in those studios and watching people do incredible things. You know, they didn't just do put beats together. They would hire real musicians to come in and play real instruments. So I was exposed to that, you know, and as a result, I'm, I, I'm so grateful to them for allowing me to be there. They usually didn't allow the artists to stay because the artists, as far as they were concerned, were just the voice on a record, but that wasn't the case with me, you know? Yeah. You were dog serious. So you wanted to soak it up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And learn all the aspect of the business. Yes. And I can dictate now what I need, what I want, how I want it. And engineers love that because then they can talk technicalities yeah. with me that most people go, you know what I mean? Right. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. So you're not that dumb blonde after all. <laughs> this is audio. So you have to say something. No, you can't just. <laughs> oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> it's between us. Augustus. Okay. <laughs> And then you put out a second uh, song, Give Me, Give Me Back My Heart. And that also had a nice beat. And, uh, you know, both of the songs had really nice beat. I mean, you could. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, that was um, uh, uh, Gus Rodriguez and uh, George Mauro. George Mauro did the music. Gus Rodriguez wrote the song. I met him through Brenda K. Starr. Um, I don't know. They loved Out of Control. He said, I have a song I think you would sound great on. It's a song he wrote about a girl who had broken his heart. And I could totally relate. That's another thing. You know, I prefer to sing the songs I write because they're about real things that I've experienced. Um, so if I sing someone else's song, it has to be a song of an experience that I've had that I could relate to so that then when I sing it, it sounds like something. It means something because there are vocalists and then there are storytellers and very few people get to be both, right? Uh, Whitney Houston was a vocalist and a storyteller. Uh, Ariana Grande is a vocalist. Beyonce is a vocalist and a storyteller. Uh, Barbara Streisand was both. Um, I am a storyteller. A lot of people will say, Karina, but your voice is so nice in this way and in that way. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of my voice and what it can do but I am so focused on emoting what I'm talking about. That's very important to me. And I've always known that about myself. Karen Carpenter was a storyteller. Her voice was beautiful and, and you, you can take nothing from her. It was a unique voice unlike any other, but she wasn't what a Mariah Carey is considered. You know what I mean? She didn't sing in those, and again, incredible voice on its own. But I am more of that kind of thing. I'm more of a vocalist with a very, I like to believe, hearty, full voice um, that can convey the story even better. And it's important to me. So give me back my heart. Uh, when, he, when he played it for me and he sang it for me because he, it wasn't recorded yet, I just thought the story was so great. I knew I could tell the story. And to this day, people are like, you're, you're talking to me when you sing that song, you know? And they say that about 
different songs of mine for different reasons, but give me back my heart. Everyone's had their heart completely stomped on at least once in their life. And the song talks to them, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, if it has not been stomped, then you haven't lived. That's right, that's right. Better to have loved, right? And, yeah, absolutely. See, you're a philosopher too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You know, Karen Carpenter had a nice tonal quality. Oh, very soothing beautiful yes you know she was originally a drummer she oh, yes, actually I know. yeah she That's actually right. played the drum while her older brother who was supposed to be the singer played the keyboard yes and in fact when they wanted her to sing she didn't want to How yes. crazy so you know you know the story right <laughs> yes oh i love her i love her i love her yes of course yes yeah it's a shame what happened to her she passed away with anorexia which is unfortunate and to me unnecessary because Look, you're a singer, and if you can sing, that's what the world wants. You know, that's, that's all we ask. That's it. And I also like the fact about the storytelling because one of my favorite songs, besides yours, obviously, is hey. Eagles, Glenn Fry song, Lion Eyes. Oh. And you know why I like it? Not, not only because of the rhythm and the melody, which I love, uh -huh. but it's telling a a, a short story about essentially what life is through this woman's perspective. Yes. You could read so many, so many, in, so much into that story within that three-verse yes. song. So it's like, wow! I love that song. Oh my god, me too. Because it's like you said, it's a story. And, and let me tell you, you ahead. know, sometimes a storyteller can take a song you've heard before. And, and recently I've seen this, I've, I've experienced this happening a lot. They could take a song that you never really paid attention to. It was okay. And make you go, oh my God, is that what they were saying, right? And a perfect example of that is Roberta Flack, If Ever I Saw Your Face. 1971. Oh my God, you hear that and you're just, you're, you're off, you're gone now. Fast forward, Johnny Cash does, if ever I saw your face, it's a completely <laughs> different song and it tears your heart. I mean, if I tell you, Roberta Flack sings it and you can feel the longing of her love. You yeah. can, when you know that feeling and, and even saying it to you now, I'm feeling it now. Johnny Cash, you can hear the pain. You can hear the sadness about life when he yeah. sings it. Yeah, that's oh, why. <laughs> I was blown away. If you haven't heard his version, please look it up. It's incredible, incredible, incredible. I have not actually. So I am I'm going to listen to uh, Johnny Cash's, but it's the same song, right? Yeah, If Ever I Saw Your Face. Okay. Yes. Well, you know, Roberta Flag. Oh, the first time I saw your face. That's what it is. Okay. Roberta Flag is from uh, Black Mountain, North Carolina. West really? of Charlotte. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. She's a Carolina girl. Look at and, uh, that. You know, oh, Johnny yeah. Cash, Man in Black, you know. I mean, you talk about telling a story. He was in the big house for a while. So a lot of the songs and, uh, you know, he's all about that. Yeah, yeah, he tells a story about uh, the big house, you know, Listen, being, uh, being in prison. You want, you know, you want storytellers that will be with us forever. Amy Winehouse is, is one of the most recent, you know, uh, examples of that. I mean, th when she sang... What you felt, oh, I mean, for me, oh my God. And all the elements that she put together, you know, she would tell you she was a huge fan of Mahalia Jackson and the blues and jazz and 
What I loved about her is that when she came out, she was unlike everything and everyone else, although you recognized the different elements, but you never heard those things together. And she was a Jewish girl. Like what? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> amazing. Just an amazing mix. I mean, talk about a melting pot of just everything. I love it. You never know where talent comes from. God, man. It's yeah. God. Yeah. And we will be right back after this important message. Hi, my beautiful people. I just wanted to let you know about a book that's helped me save a lot of money. The book is called How to Buy in Today's Digital World, Tips for Those Who Want to Save a Buck. This book provides step-by-step -step tips on how to save money on your online purchases. It also instructs you on making smart financial decisions when buying groceries, booking flights and hotels, plus lots more. I hope you get a chance to get your copy. I think you'll love it. And I know you'll save some money. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And we're back. And you had a great 1991 year. Holy crap. Amazing. Um, you know, so many things happened, didn't happen, happened some more. It was a crazy time. And it was a little bit of a whirlwind because it was the first three months the song was on cutting and doing well. And I kept feeling like, it can be doing so much better and they wouldn't pay for a, they wouldn't pay for a video because they couldn't afford the kind of video I wanted. And then one day uh, we start getting calls from three labels that wanted to sign me. And I said to Aldo from cutting, I need to meet them. And the first place we went to was Atco and Derek Shulman, who was actually of a band himself and then became, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s and then became the president of Atco Records Atlantic. Um, we connected and it was like, this is my home. And he immediately greenlit me and he was throwing at the time the really, really, really big producers of the music that I did were people like, or at least a graduation of it, were people like CNC Music Factory and Millie Vanilli and the, uh, uh, um, what were their names? Um, oh my God, LA and Babyface and that type of thing. And he would say to me, whatever you want, whoever you want. And I would say, you know, if nothing else, I am monogamous to a fault and I'm very, um, I take care of my people. I would later find out that it wasn't reciprocated, but, you know, I would say, look, I have to stick with the people who came up with me. You know, if I'm going to have success, they have to come with me. And so that's what we did. And we released an album. And then I said to him, he said, what, if you could have anything right now in reference to the song, what would it be? I said, a banging music video. London, here we come. Why? Because in London, we could get a $500,000 video at the time from this particular individual for like $100,000. And the video was beautiful. <laughs> that's, worth, that's worth a flight across the pond. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I did things, 
you know, I'm a girl from the South Bronx in Spanish Harlem, and I got to go to places and I got to eat foods and meet people and have experiences that even in my wildest dreams, <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Well, you know? that's what it's all about. You know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, and yeah. When, you, when you have a beer across the pond, it's better too. It was just incredible and an experience that has colored my world above and beyond even what I thought possible, you know? And also for me, when I listened to uh, your 1991 uh, songs, stylistically, it seemed more mature with more depth than uh, your first one. You know, that may have been, honestly, the Barbara Streisand, Karen Carpenter share influence because I did everything they did. My mother was a frustrated artist and all of her records I was allowed to play. And so she had all the Motown things from when she was a kid. And I just think that I was, um, I acclimated to a certain level of artistry based on those geniuses and those incredible artists. I really believe that they molded me into the artist that I am. I do. I don't know the, the people, a lot of my contemporaries in, in, uh, in my genre grew up as I did listening to a radio station that played everything. Cause if you remember it was country, it was dance, it was everything. Um, but I don't know. I find that so many of them, you know, it's like a horse with blinders. They only do and see this thing. And I, we all grew up and I was a child when I did certain songs and while I love them and I'll still perform them and enjoy them, I am a woman with a lot of experience that I could pour into my new music. And I want that, you know? Yeah. And you're also from the generation where singers actually knew how to sing. <laughs> Ooh, yes, exactly. No auto box, you know, I mean, Frank Sinatra, oh. Dean Martin, Sammy, I mean, they oh, stay. Oh my goodness. You know? Yes, yes. And you're from the old school, so you actually know how to sing. Yes, thank you very much. I so like I, to think. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I appreciate your humility. So, no. so you are getting unnoticed now, obviously, in the music world, and you ended up on MTV's uh, Club MTV with downtown Julie Brown. Tell me, how, how, how was she? Oh, she was great. She was so fun. And, you know, she's English. That accent gets me every time. So she was amazing. I don't know. She, I had heard rumors that she might be mean. And what I learned is that if she liked you, you were good. And I guess she liked me because many years later, someone would say to her, oh, remember Karina? And she'd be like, oh, Karina's my girl. Tell her I said hi. You know, and that was as recent as like four or five years ago. So I don't know. She was great. That was an incredible experience. To this day, when I see that clip, I'm there. It was, it was just, and it was the beginning of the really big stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's right. Which leads right into, uh, you started touring with uh, like Ice Cube, Boys to Men, Marky Mark. Yeah. So, so Start talking Cube, about that. Yeah. So Ice Cube would come later uh, when I was on So So Deaf with uh, Jermaine Dupri. Uh, and Summertime, Summertime, which was Social Deaf Columbia. But um, what Temptation and MTV, which is a, a really, it was a great story in this case. MTV, there was something called Video Music Box, if you remember. Yep. And they played all of our, as in freestyle music, videos if we had one. Most people didn't have videos. Um, when Temptation hit, no one knew what I was. They thought, 
is she Indian? Oh, she's a light-skinned black girl. And that was very in, right? So MTV picked it up and they assumed that I was a light-skinned black woman. So my song, as it continued to grow, uh, was on something called hot rotation, which meant that you got played eight or more times a day. That was huge because only the rock stars got that. Then I go and I do a radio station in Washington. It was a black station, but it was equivalent to a KISS FM, right? Or a 98.7 KISS, right? Um, and the, the DJ, the radio guy is interviewing me, loving me. Uh, Lenny Kravitz, who was do next, said, no, take her first. It was also, it was all surreal. I'm like, Lenny Kravitz just said, go ahead, girl, I got you. I was freaking out. It was crazy. I'm like, where am I? What's going on? So we go inside and he's being so incredible. And he's kind of laying on the, the liking me a little thick and whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's what you deal with. But then at some point he says, uh, so sister, you know, I just wanted to talk to you about the fact that this song had a very similar sound to another song that they tried to get us to play. We would never play it because it was a little too, how can I say this? It had too much of some Latin flair. We didn't like her voice. He was talking about Together Forever. So I go, okay. He goes, yeah, they were really similar, except that, you know, you're a sister. And, and we were like, we got to go with the sister and that beat is slamming, but with your voice and the beat. And he goes, so talk to us a little bit about how that, how your career came to be and how you would wind up doing this song and blah, 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 and doing that kind of dance music. And I'm, so I'm, I'm going, oh, I see what's happening here. And I said, well, I was born in Spanish Harlem and raised in the South Bronx to Puerto Rican parents. And he went, whoa, wait. <laughs> He goes, holla, live, okay, on the air. He goes, oh, so you ain't a sister? And I said, where I come from, I'm about as sister as it gets, honey. What are you talking about? Are you talking about black? Well, technically I'm Puerto Rican. I'm a third black African. He was like, nah, 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 nah. I'm surprised we picked up that record because we don't play that kind of music here. Hey, And my response was, what kind of music is that? Hits? Because that's what I've got. Mm. And he was like, no, no, you got to understand, you know, this is an R&B and rap station. And I'm like, okay, well, I couldn't understand why I was here with a dance record myself. He's like, well, because, you know, I thought you was a sister. And I said, once again, I'm a sister. I'm a sister. I'm from the South Bronx. You don't get more sister than that. And so he says, uh, well, you know, thank you for coming and blah, blah, blah. The very next day, Augustus, MTV drops my video from eight times rotation a day to one time a week on something called black box or some, some craziness. And I still had a bullet and was moving up on the pop charts. Tell me that's not racism. That's the kind wow. of stuff you deal with in this industry. And if you don't have crazy money behind you to counter that or to make it stop so jennifer lopez benefited greatly because of people like me she Absolutely. used to take my um she used to take my appointments she worked out of a damn studio on 49th and broadway and she was the receptionist girl and i could call her and be like jenny 
I need the next two weeks because I'm going on tour again and I have new dancers and she's the girl that I paid. I think her boyfriend owned the studio at the time and she got to watch me and several other artists coming in and out of there and all the mistakes you were making. She would talk to the people that we were working with and that really helped. Oh yeah. She knows that, you know? Well, I'm not going to ask her. Uh, I mean, we have a sense already, but you don't ever forget your uh, beginning. And when you do, then it's going to be a harsh landing at some point. That's right. The irony of the uh, radio station DJ is that it's one thing if something like that came, happened or came to you and they were of the majority race, but coming from another minority race, you would, you would have thought that, you know, you know what it feels to be discriminated against. So why would you want to do the same thing to somebody else? So what I said to him. That to me is hypocrisy in the ultimate uh, way. Absolutely. So, you know, while there was, you know, oftentimes I get into discussions with friends and family about the black and white experience. And my mom, uh, my mom was a little darker than me. My sister is darker still. And so my sister is very Latina, but, but black identified if you will, because that's how, that's the world she fit into, right? So the discussions that we would have were about the difference in experience. And what I found in the music industry is that where for a long time, it was a very, very white world and the black world was kept separate from it, right? You had the Motowns and then you had the pop market over there. Um, When I was up and coming, there literally was no place for me. I was a Puerto Rican girl that didn't, that barely spoke Spanish. I speak much greater Spanish now. Um, I didn't sing in Spanish, right? So it was like, what do we do with her? And she's, yeah. and she's you know, when she sings like Karen Carpenter, like, what are we going to do with that? It, it was too much of a weird thing for them. And I didn't fit in the Black music because it was strict R&B and rap. And it was Black. Right. And then I didn't fit into and I was no Tina Marie, who was a white woman. Who <laughs> oh, yeah. Like a black woman. I remember Tina Marie. Amazing, right. And so I didn't sing like that. So yeah. it wasn't like they could be like, well, we'll take her on because at least her voice does this. No. Um, so the white world was like, I don't know what to do with that. This, you know, they wouldn't flat out say it, although they were roundabout things that they said that, you know, it's nice that you have an opinion. Um, but you're in. So just be pretty and smile a lot and nod. And I was like, oh, shit, they really said that to me. <laughs> you really said that. So with this guy, it was like, you know, I've always been very proud of the fact that I'm a sister from around the way. I am. And listen, I will often refer to myself as ghetto and proud because with that, a capital G or small G. <laughs> capital. I am like, I'm proud of the hood, man. I'm proud of what's come out of there. I'm proud of who I am as a result. And I'm an educated woman who can go out into the world and represent with class and respect. And I can get down in the dirt if you push it. I'm just saying, it. that's the reality of who I am. Um, so when I got into the industry and it was like, I was too light to be in the black world and I didn't quite sing like that. And I wasn't light enough to pass. And I wasn't trying to pass anyway, which a lot of people I knew 
got into the business world, Wall Street or whatever, and passed in my own family on my father's side because it meant better opportunities for their children and college and all that. And I have a very strong opinion about it, but they have a right to eat and survive however they see fit. And by the way, they have to live with themselves in the end. Just saying, right? There you go. The choices. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, uh, you, you were very successful uh, during the 90s there, and you got to meet some interesting people, which also led to your filming uh, aspect, right? So in 1990, you and Mark Anthony, who's an interesting character, uh, yes. did a film together. Yes. So um, East Side Story, which would become Street Dreams and then will become East Side Story again. Um, basically, they had this kid who, and I'm going to tell the story as I was told and as he told it to me and the, uh, his manager at the time. He was not considered attractive. He had very thick glasses. He was a twig of a person. He had this enormous voice. Um, because he was so young, he didn't quite know how to use it yet. So he yelled a lot. When he, when he sang, he screamed. And so they were building this film around him because he was very funny. So then they needed a girl and they started auditioning and they needed a girl that looked like Iris Chacon, the Puerto Rican bombshell, um, who was like a, she was the first booty girl, right? <laughs> and they basically hired her to play a part and she had a sister. Um, when we did the auditions, I was told that I was the best audition, but that I didn't look like her. I was too dark. My hair and my eyes registers me to people as darker than I am. So when I've been lighter in the hair, my skin tone changes, right? So at the time, my hair was very dark and they were like, no, you're too dark. So they hired Brenda K. Stark because Brenda's hair was uh, like reddish blonde and her skin tone was lighter than mine, right? Uh, I think she rehearsed for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe. And then there were some issues with her, her touring schedule. She had that big hit, I still believe at the time. So it wasn't working out. Her schedule with the shooting schedule wasn't working out. So she left. They needed a girl now. And because they had wanted me from the beginning, um, they said, well, let's see, let's lighten their hair. I said to them, if my hair were lighter, I would read lighter. And so they sent me somewhere to bleach my hair for eight hours. They fried my head. I was practically bald. They made the hair so bright. And then I became Iris Chacon's little sister. And then they decided that it wasn't going to be a story about Mark Anthony uh, Flacco, the character, but a, a, a story about three kids trying to make it in the music industry. So the three leads were myself, him, and this guy named, uh, I want to say Jonathan. I don't remember his, his main name. Um, and anyway, it became this really fun kind of, I don't know, cute story. And Mark Anthony was very funny at the time. And, and I remember him being kind of awkward around women and me trying to hook him up with my friends. And they would be like, no, not, you know, and now they're all kicking themselves, right? Because he opens his mouth and you're like, oh my God, that voice. And he even manages, I don't know, money does this sometimes. He manages to be kind of hot and sexy now for <laughs> strange reason. <laughs> he 
you know, he's my guy, my, my little brother, as far as I'm concerned. But that's the way Chrissy ICC sees him as a little brother. Yes, <laughs> I am so, I couldn't be prouder yeah. of what he's accomplished. Man, you don't understand. One of the, um, during when Sapphire song, um, not let me be the one, what is the other one? Boy, I've been told he wrote that. Uh, it was supposed to be for him, girl, I've been told, and they made him give it to her. So because he wasn't making it in the music industry again, because they claim, well, he's not cute enough and he's awkward looking, we'll put him through the film and then maybe he'll break out into music later. So he gave several songs to Sapphire. And I remember she's at a hot night. You remember the Hot 103 used to do these things called Hot Night, where they would get like superstars and then a couple of the freestyle acts that were doing the best. And then you had this night that you had to win tickets for. So she was on stage. It was live on the radio and none of us had tickets to go, but he said, let's all get together in my house. And I think it was right after the movie wrapped. He said, let's get together in my house and let's, um, let's listen to the, the, the live show on the radio on, on hot 103 or 97 it was 103. So we're sitting in his living room and we ordered pizza and she comes on and it's her turn to sing. And he says to me, I wrote that. And she's singing it and she's getting so many accolades for a song I wrote and I was so proud. And then he eats his pizza and says, can I have, I'm gonna eat a second slice. Can I have a second slice? Because this is probably the only thing I'll have for three or four days when I get some money. That's how he was living. And here was this song, which I know he got no royalties on at all, okay? And he literally was someone that would go without eating for days, Augustus. And to see what he's accomplished, are you kidding me? I think fans don't realize that what fans see is the glamour. They don't see the struggles, you know, no. often decades, no, no. you know, five, 10 years, 15 years. That's right. And he, and he struggled to get a deal, Augustus. It took a long time. You know? And it's sad that he, he could write a song like that and then let somebody else end up enjoying it. And it's just kind of sad. And it's I hope terrible. that, yeah, I hope that now, you know, he's went through the whole gamut from, you know, the beginning, success. Right. And uh, I hope he finds uh, his happiness because it's not going to find it from without. It's going to be right. from within. That's right. And I think he's figuring that out. And unfortunately, you know, for some of us, it's a, it's a longer road than for others, you yeah. know, to come to a place where you're, just happy being who you are. Yep. You know, I've, I've made some bad choices and I've suffered greatly for, you know, in some cases, putting all of my belief in people who just weren't going to be there for me, who I already knew wouldn't, but I, I, I really believe that if I loved them enough, that they could, right? We do yeah. that sometimes. And, and, and what I didn't know is that if a person doesn't love themselves, all the love in the world that you give them is for naught. I didn't know that. It took me almost my entire life to figure it out. And I'm in such, I'm in a much better, healthier place now as a result of understanding that and, and accepting that all the challenges have given me so many blessings, you know? That's what I said to you at the beginning. You're in a good place now, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. People that are in the entertainment business, whether it's uh, singing, vocal or, uh, you know, film and performance, 
you know, if they are seeking happiness from the profession, they're not going to find it. At all. They're always going to be chasing something. Yes. They'll never catch up with it. Yes, it's I why so many people wind up on drugs, Augustus. Yeah. If I do because one more song, if I do one more film, I'd be happy. No, it never ends. No. You realize that, hey, you know what? If it happens, great. If not, I'm okay. Because those things do not define who I am. That's because right. I define who I am. Yes. And as long as yeah. that is the case, then I'm happy. That's my philosophy. It's so true. <laughs> I love that. That's true. You're right. And I see that in you. I see that uh, whatever you're doing now, which we will cover, it doesn't really matter because you are in a good place because you're happy from within. Thank you. So, but yeah. I, I love these stories that you tell because I hope the listeners, you know, learn from it because Mark Anthony didn't have it always, you know, as good as people think and oh, no. buy his image, but they don't buy who he is when he was going through it. Listen, he released a ton of records that did nothing. And when and if they did something is because they were connected to little Louis Vega. He wasn't taken seriously. When they asked him to do a salsa album, he didn't want to. Um, and it was while stuck in traffic, a Luis Miguel song came on and he said, he called his manager and said, listen, you keep hounding me about this salsa album. If I can do a couple of songs like that, I'll give you your salsa album. And that's essentially what happened. And in fact, he got pretty beat up uh, by our people who decided that he was just kind of taking a ride so that he could get paid. They didn't think he was authentic and he had to prove himself. And it took years before that happened. So I promise you, he everything he has, he worked really hard for and deserves. I believe it. Well, I'm happy for him. And uh, if he needs to talk to somebody about the second half of his life, yeah, you know where to contact you, right? Yeah, awesome. That's right. Yeah. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. You were a singer prior to this, and of course you made videos. But at the same time, when you were doing film, it's a different skill set. So what is the biggest difference you, you experience from being a, a singer to being in front of the camera? Well, you know what's funny? That for me, they're not that different. Because, for example, when I get into the, into the uh, vocal booth, if I am not performing the song, the song's not getting sung, basically, right? So acting is living truthfully under imaginary circumstances, right? That's exactly what singing is for me. In order for me, if I walk in to a studio and I'm singing a song about a heartbreak that I had many years ago, and I'm feeling especially good that day, that's not going to be an easy song for me to do. In fact, I'm not going to be able to sing it. So I have to live, you know, under these imaginary circumstances, the circumstances of the story. I have to get to it. Sometimes it happens right away. Sometimes it takes a couple of hours. And then once I'm in, I am living that. It's for me, it's the same when I act. When I create characters, 
I have to know who they are from birth. It doesn't have to make it into the story, but I need to know what they eat, how they dress, how they think, so that they can interact with all the other people who may be for or against <laughs> You know what I mean? So I don't know those, those, that world, since I was a child, when I sang in front of the mirror to my imaginary audience, I acted for them as well. I, I did the stories that I thought the songs were about. I would act it out and sing it. So those things are one for me. You know, I didn't even actually know that till you asked me actually. So thank okay, you. Good for you because sometimes the transition is not as easy because it does require a different set of mentality and, and state of mind. And so. And skills often, you know? And for some reason, I think it's because I did all of it always, all the time together, that it just feels like one thing. It feels like my creativity. That's what I'm doing, you know? Right. So, following uh, the film you did with Mark Anthony, uh, later on, you did a very sort of a heavy themed film called Crater Will Rock, which is social slash political uh, theme film yes yes you know that is hands down uh meeting mr tim robbins um he allowed me to sit by his side for two weeks uh whether i was working or not where i could watch susan sarandon ruben blades uh, my god john cusack joan cusack uh, Bill Murray, it goes Vanessa Redgrave. It, the list is endless. Hey, let's not forget Carrie Wells. Oh, Princess my Bride. God. What a mind guy I enjoy. <laughs> How crazy is that? Right, right. So Jack Black, right? All these people, John Turturro. It was the best acting class I could ever. I said this to him. I was like, there's not an acting class on the planet that trumps this because I got to see every kind. Look, I didn't even know. I knew there were styles of acting. I would even, I, I, I took acting classes. We're going to cover that baby. Don't worry. Okay. So he, for me, I, I got to see how Susan Sarandon came to her character, John Cusack, Ruben Blades. Everyone had a completely different way to bring to life these characters. And I was completely blown away at the world they were exposing me to and everything that I had access to that I didn't even know I had. And Tim Robbins gave me that. And I love him. I, you know, you remember the film To Sir With Love with Sidney Poitier? Yeah, oh, right? what a beauty. Right. So I, I make these, um, I craft these books it's kind of a meditation for me. And I made one for him and I signed it to Sir with Love. Thank you for taking me from crayons to perfume. And he was like, oh my God. He was, he's just such love. I love him. I love him. I love him. That, that's a pretty scene right there when you did that, to Sir with Love. How poetic. Oh my God. Yeah, to Sir with Love. And he was so touched by it. And I just, and I'm like, this is my truth. I, it's one of those movies that I watched as a child. That and Jesus Christ Superstar on repeat over and over and over. And I don't know, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, I acted all the parts. I sang all the songs uh, to serve with love. I sang all the songs, including the man's songs. And these things mean, these two things were so much a part of my life that when I said that to him, I told him, I said, you don't understand. Those are like, those, that, that, that's the soundtrack to my life, those two films. 
you know, and he was just like, wow. And I, I don't know. I love him. I'm so grateful for him. It was an incredible experience. Sydney Poitier, man, that beyond black and white. I mean, what a Amazing, character. That he right? Played, right? I mean, what he accomplished oh. during the time that he did is crazy. Yeah. It, it had to be self-love and his belief in himself because yeah. he also suffered. Yeah. He didn't oh, yeah. have an easy time of it either, you know? I think he didn't even learn it. He didn't know how to speak English. Uh, what's it? He didn't know how to read when he came to oh America. Oh, my God. You and see he that? was, yeah, when he, he was working in a restaurant as a busboy or something, when he was, you know, about 10, whatever, when he was young. And there was an African-American uh, older gentleman who wow. was in the, working in the kitchen. And one day, the gentleman was reading a newspaper, and Sidney Poitier came out there and, was, and watching him. And, you know, the gentleman said, you want to read this? And it just gave him the paper. And Sidney said that he didn't know how to read. So the gentleman offered to teach him how to read. Because when he, would, when he wanted to do it, he was sent to an audition one time, but he couldn't learn the lines because he didn't, couldn't read it. Mm-hmm. So when this gentleman offered to teach him how to read, Sidney Poitier took up that offer. And every day, the gentleman taught him to read to the point that he could read and he could audition, which led to Sidney Poitier's film role in To Serve With Love and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. What a beautiful story. That's an incredible story. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, Tim Robbins, uh, I mean, to me, his greatest role was in Shawshank Redemption. I mean, you you talk about the perfect person for the perfect casting in a perfect movie with a perfect character. That was it. All the way around perfect. (laughs) Yes. Crazy, right? Yes. Unbelievable. Yes. 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 There's no way Tim Robbins could ever top that because that was just perfect. Incredibly so. Amazing. Everything about it. Everything. How did you enjoy it as a director? Oh, man. I've been directed by many people. I've done quite a few things that made it out and other things that didn't. And he was by far the kindest, most loving. And let me tell you, don't get it twisted. When things weren't quite going the way he wanted it to, and he knew that someone was slacking, he burned asses for sure. He was not, he didn't play, but he, he is absolutely an, an actor's director because he's an actor himself. And he's, and he's so kind. And he, he basically puts out everything for you to be able to arrive wherever you're trying to go. And he's, he's there front and center the whole way through. I just watched it firsthand. And he was, he's, he was an incredible experience for me. Yeah. Good to know. Now, sometimes when you're filming, you know, even though you have these stars around it, you don't always film at the same time. So you're, you're passing all across. Did you ever work with Carrie? From Princess Bride? No. Okay. <clears throat> I saw her. I saw her briefly. Um, we were we crossed each other while going in for costumes. But that was as far as it got. And I think I want to I want to say I saw her when she was going in for um uh there was a dinner scene or something. I'm trying to no, you're talking, I'm sorry. Talking about I'm, Carrie. Yes. Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. No. His, everything, everything shot around those scenes were separate from my stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I, I get that. That's not a problem. Now, yeah. um, in that film, 
you played a character named Frida Kahlo, who was a, a Mexican artist. Yes. How uh, would you think about the character and, and her story? Oh my God. Well, for starters, I found her to be incredibly dark, which I was very drawn to. You know, even in my best singing, I sing in, in my most comfortable keys when I'm emoting are the minor ones. Sure. And I've always surrounded myself, you know, at, at the height of my uh, finances, I'll say, I had a, an apartment that I was literally turning into like interview with a vampire set. I was just, I was more comfortable in that, right? Tell, um, tell us who Frida Kahlo is for the listeners who may not be familiar. So oh, Frida Kahlo yeah. was an incredibly important, super political uh, Mexican painter. And she's incredibly important to her people. And she was married uh, to Diego Rivera, also an important painter, but she uh, was more, he tended to be more towards like, going out into society and, and being around the Kennedys and that kind of thing. She wanted no part of it at all. She hated the Kennedys. She hated everything about all of it, you know, and she was just this super roots, incredible uh, artist who bled onto her canvases. As far as I'm concerned, you know, her, 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 her insides were on those canvases and incredible. And how did you want it to portray her? Well, because I was so young at the time, um, what I read up on her seemed to focus primarily on, of course, her art, how it came to be, what it meant to her. Um, but also, she was so against convention. You know, she was considered an attractive woman. So she did everything to be the opposite of what she thought they were focused on you know with the hair on the lip and the eye the one eyebrow and she really pushed that thing and went further in her paintings even you know accented it further um when how i even got the part i got a call from an extra casting director right all he did was extras and he said somebody saw you i can't tell you who it is um and they're gonna send the car for you and so I said to him, I don't want to do extra work. I had done one or two extra things. I said, because people that do extra don't necessarily make it to the other side. And he's like, no, 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 no. You want to take this meeting? I said, okay. He, he said, uh, he thinks you look like someone that is in his film. He doesn't tell me anything about it. And because I trusted the casting director, I went. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten in this car the next day. And so we drove for about an hour and a half. Uh, into New Jersey. And when we got to the place, it was the theater that Mark Anthony and I had shot uh, the East Side Story scenes in. And I thought, I didn't even know where that theater was. So to get there and be standing in front of it, I was like, this is crazy. I was here 10 years ago. This is a theater. So as I'm walking in, there are a bunch of people with walkie tees and they're like, shh, they're shushing me. And I'm like, and they're like, don't move, don't walk. And I realized almost instantaneously that this was a big film just by how many people were doing this one job, right? Then I hear a cut and she goes, go through that door, go through the curtain. The curtain took me into the, the, the theater where all the seats were and way ahead and I, I'm nearsighted. 
I could see people on stage and I saw giant cameras and I'm like, oh my God, like what's going on? Where am I? So as I walk down the aisle, someone comes running and says, can I help you? I said, I'm looking for someone called Alan Greenberg. And they say, oh yeah, just get up on stage. As I walk to the stage, I see um, Bill Murray and I freak out, right? I'm like, I can't go up there. Bill Murray's up there. He's got a ventriloquist dummy. And they're like, no, 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 they're on a break. Just go, go. So I get on stage and I'm trying to be careful around Bill Murray. And he looks at me and goes, Frida. I have no idea what he's talking about. Bill Murray, right? So now I'm like, okay, weirdo. So I keep walking. <laughs> and now I'm like, you know, oh my God, that's Bill Murray. He's amazing. And then I see this man. And as I'm walking toward him, I go, excuse me. A voice says, can I help you? Who are you looking for? And I go, oh, I'm looking for Alan Greenberg. And when I turn around, it's Tim Robbins and he's tall. And I go, oh my God, you look like a really big Doogie Hauser. And he starts screaming, laughing. He's like, oh, that's so great. I'm like, I was, I'm a person that around celebrity, I tend to be really cool, almost cold but I had no preparation for this. And the night before I had just seen HUD sucker proxy. What are the chances of that? What are the chances? Amazing, right? And of course, Shawshank, I'm like, so I'm standing there, I'm freaking out. And he goes, can you dance salsa? He asks me. And I'm like, of course he dances with me, right? He twirls me once and he goes, come on, you're my Frida. And I'm like, What's with this Frida? What are we talking about? He says, you're my Frida Kahlo. Do you know who she is? And I'm like, so at this point, I haven't researched her. Right. Why would I? I don't know anything, right? Right. And I know she's a Mexican painter. And he goes, when you get home, you got to read up on her. Go to the library, get everything you can. And he goes, so I'm going to send you to the honey wagon makeup because I want to see what you look like done up. And he sends me in. And as I walk into the wagon in the makeup chair is Susan Sarandon. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh. I'm just like, <laughs> and she goes, hi, come in, have a seat. You're, are you our Frida Kahlo? And I'm like, apparently they did my makeup. They did my clothing and tests. They sent me out and that was it. I was Frida Kahlo. Now I'm trying to inhale as much information as I can about her because I honestly, in terms of her personal life, I knew nothing. Of course I had seen her. Everyone has seen those famous, the famous eyebrow. And one of the things that happened is that they put a mustache on me. They gave me an eyebrow and I was like, no. I said, he goes, what do you think? You look amazing. And I said, oh my God, I'm so grateful. And I thank you but can we go a little less on the mustache? Cause this is my first really big film. And he started laughing and he said, all right, but we keep the eyebrows like fine. <laughs> That's funny. You know, in the Star Trek, one of the Star Trek movies, I think it was an earlier one where there's a woman, she's an Indian actress and they shave their head completely off. And she's a beautiful lady. And to get that role, she had to shave her head as one of those uh, starship uh, fleet officers and it almost killed her, but she did it. And you know, oh, that's how man. it goes. <laughs> It's a horror. Yeah, they just completely shaved her, and that was the you know that's the character, you know, and then but that's how it goes. But you realize now how easy that casting was for you because it doesn't happen like that. No. And (laughs) And I and I'll say something for the listeners and the watchers. I'll say 
There's a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I'm sure you know it. Okay. If I tell you, Augustus, that every single time I read that book from cover to cover, and I maybe do 10% of what it asks me to do, something enormous happens. The Tim Robbins film came after reading it. My record deal came after reading it. Getting the movie, uh, uh, East Side Story came after reading it. I've read the book, I don't know how many times, but if I tell you every time I read it, something incredible happens. I'm about to read it cover to cover again to help me along with this album that I'm in the middle of now. But I kid you not. And that was when it happened, it was so freaky and crazy. And I had so many friends that worked on Hollywood films all the time. And when I told them this, they were like, that doesn't happen. And I'm like, it's the book. I'm telling you, it's the book. It's something about the way they put everything together. I really believe it. It's crazy. You know, I'm a little slow, but I think I see a pattern there somewhere. <laughs> yes. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. It's like magic. I don't know, but I believe it. Maybe it's because I believe it that it's that way. I don't know. Hey, if it works, we're going to keep it up. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Okay, so you had the uh, pleasure of being in film production on both on the North American continent as well as in the European continent. Uh, do you notice any differences in how, say, Hollywood in general sees Latin uh, actors and actresses versus how European industry sees uh, Latin? and? Uh... Absolutely. Okay, yeah. give us some insight. The first thing that I'll say is I did a film in Italy. Um, it was called The Beauty uh, with a, a director called Mauro. Um, I'm trying to remember his, his first name. Mauro Salvi. Oh, it's Mauro Salvi. So Mauro is his first name. Um, the interesting thing that I discovered and what I see in film when I see the, the films that come here from Spain and Argentina and Mexico um, the huge difference is that the United States, there is an idea they have uh, about what American is. And I don't care, you know, you will hear people say all the time, you know, it's changed so much. It's changing. I'm sorry. It hasn't changed enough. And if I say name five Latino actors right now, you, people go Jennifer Lopez. And it's questionable whether you can call her an actor or not. That's my opinion, right? I think she's a phenomenal talent, phenomenal. Uh, I think she works really hard and I give her props for that. Um, but when you consider that when you say, give me a Latina actor and they say Jennifer Lopez, come on, man. I personally know some amazing talent that doesn't get a biscuit thrown at them at all because they're not mainstream friendly or, you know, they don't fit into this. You know, when you think of Zoe Zaldana, right? Okay. Zoe is Dominican. I don't know if she's Dominican and Puerto Rican, but either way she is Hispanic. 
Zoe is absolutely mainstream friendly because she sounds like them. She knows how to be like them. And when I say like them, listen, I'm going to call it what it is. When my people came from Puerto Rico, what they tried to do, especially the blonde ones with the blue eyes was let's be as white as we can possibly be so that we can eat. That was the reality. Some of us didn't have that option, right? Um, racism in Hollywood is alive and well. And if, and as far as my own experience, it is not a thing. It's not a blip in, in Europe. Now, I shot a video in Europe and they separated when I was shooting Temptation to be precise. I, uh, when it was time to eat, the dancers that I had chosen over there, uh, they were black dancers. They were kept in a room uh, with other talent in the video that were also dancing, but not quite doing the hip hop. They were of color. They were brown and black people. They were in a room. And then I didn't know this until it came time to eat. Uh, they said, I went over to talk to the dancers and I was talking to them about the scene we were gonna shoot. And someone came over and said, yeah, um, are you gonna eat? I said, yeah, I'm gonna eat right here with them. And their answer was, no, you don't eat with them. You're gonna eat with us over here. And I'm like, why can't they eat with us then? Well, because they're the dancers. But what I was very sensitive to is that they never said black and they never said brown. But I was very aware that where I was going, the room, it was all white. So I said, no, either they come to the room with us or I'm going to eat with them here. And I was the talent. They weren't going to argue with me. They didn't like it. Now, that was the one experience I had over there like that. Because if I'm, if I'm terribly honest, I will tell you that as far as Europe is concerned, and as far as color, which Josephine Baker discovered, it's why she wanted to live in Paris. It's like, sure, we could say, well, it was an exoticizing. And that's why they love, I don't know. I think they appreciate talent. And I think they can get past the color much easier than the United States ever could. I don't care how talented you are here. You literally have to, I, I'm a singer who can write. I believe I can act. I can direct, produce, and I still have to hustle. And I have to be five times better than a lot of these. And, and when I was young, I used to say it, this little white girl just got this part in this film and I was better. And I auditioned for it and they gave it to her because, and you know, my opinion is that Europe, because of the, um, the level of work that comes here from other countries, Latino countries that are European and Europe itself, you know, British movies, whatever, the talent is unmistakable, undeniable. Um, and the United States, no, I think, I think we have a lot of, I mean, Trump is a perfect example and a, and a, and a creation of that ideology of what America should be. You know, I'm American. I was born here. You know, I'm as American as anybody else, but I, I've been living in this neighborhood now, which was my husband's apartment before I, I met him. Uh, I've been here 16 years. He's been here probably closer to 40 years. And I will never forget about seven years ago, we're walking down the street. This was a primarily black and uh, Hispanic neighborhood. And an uh, older white woman was walking toward me. She had a cart. She was in the way or something. And I tried to 
move out of the way to make more room on the sidewalk, which was quite big, but she was taking all of it up with all the stuff she had. And when I said, excuse me, because I was trying to get around her and she wasn't trying to be helpful, she turned around and said, go back to your effing country. Oh, wow. You know, and I'm like, I turned around and I said, are you crazy? First of all, woman, do you know the neighborhood you're in? Do you realize you will be annihilated by the 20 people that will pounce on you right now? I'm offering, I'm extending you a kindness. Go. And she continued, go back to your country. We don't want you here. This is America, she kept saying. Augustus, like what? Right? That's essentially what Hollywood is. I think if we're lucky, we get a director like a Tim Robbins, right? Yeah. If, but that seems to be contradicting all the persona that Hollywood wants to portray itself, that they're into diversity, et cetera, et cetera. How do you reconcile the two? Well, I'll tell you why they're doing it first, because there's money in it. (laughs) Right? Brown and black people, it's like, we may not have anything, but we spend everything we have on movies and music and entertainment. It's, it's how we survive. So it's an economics for them. If they could completely work without us, and they prove it because even now, you know, with as much color as has integrated itself into, say, even music, thanks to things like rap, right? Uh, because R&B was kept over there, far over there. Right. And and with as much color as has integrated itself into the entertainment industry, that does not stop them from having an all white Oscars when there were plenty of black films that actors could have been chosen from and did phenomenal jobs. I mean, it's it's so blatantly obvious. And then when you bring it up, they're like, I don't know what you mean. And then there's the fact that they are used to and accustomed to their America is where they live, who they live by, who they live with. I get that. I get that your world is what you surround yourself with and by. And so they want to keep things as close to home as possible. But guess what? We're here. (laughs) Deal with it. Yes. But uh, I mean, I'm not obviously uh, white and I'm not Latino or black. You know, I'm Asian. You're you're Asian. Yes. So. And when I see uh, Hollywood, or films or TV shows. To me, even in 2022, only Asians that I see in terms of character are stereotyped from 40s and 50s. So to me, Asia is nothing like that in reality. And they tend to cast all these archetypical Asians with really, really small eyes. I mean, just to exaggerate that Asian-ness when there's tremendous number of good-looking Asian men and women, but they don't cast them. They just cast these ridiculous off-the-bell curve type of, you know, uh, of the uh, uh, characters. So for me, I lose interest. And when they send me these auditions, I read it and go, ah, you just establishes or continuation of stereotype image i'm not really interested you know Uh, at least give me normal what society asians are actually like thank you you. that's what i see you know but uh uh-huh they're either offensively stereotyped Mm -hmm. right 
they either offensively stereotypical or they are whitewashed, mm -hmm. right? They're the ones like in my own, I, I have a few actor acquaintances that may as well be white. Everything about the way they move and talk. And in fact, when you become too ethnic around them, they're like, ooh. Yeah, like, we, call, we call them bananas in, in Asia, bananas. Yellow on the outside, white on the bananas. inside. Yeah, like Oreos, cookie bananas. Yes, exactly. Oreos, exactly, exactly. And I see it. And it's like, unfortunately, since there's so many of those types of people willing to do that, that really hurts us. You see? So my question to you is, what's it going to take for Hollywood to just recognize society as is, as opposed to trying to continue to control what, yeah. it, what it's supposed to be, right? You know, if I'm honest, I would have to say for me, if this album, for example, a perfect example is the album I'm working on. If it succeeds to the level even partially what temptation, right? That's still a lot because temptation went all over the world, right? If I, for example, got the United States and say Italy, Spain, and Brazil, where the people love my music there. And I, if I got a foot in and I was able to do interviews like this, that's what changes it. Because what people need is perspective. And also people who are not... The funny thing about music is that it has a way of bringing all kinds of people together who would never be together under other circumstances, right? So some really racist, you know, white person in Utah, you know, in the <laughs> woods that got to hear one of my songs and thought, oh my God, that's the most beautiful sound I ever heard. That's it. We're already connected. That person seeks me out for whatever the reason, thanks to things like internet, sees me, has to acclimate now to what they're seeing. And now they get to hear me. And I'd like to think of myself as a somewhat intelligent person who can form sentences and express what I'm feeling. And that educates them because unfortunately, sometimes they are sold that in my case, Latinos, specifically Puerto Rican and Dominican, are drug dealers and prostitutes. So we are, right? We're into domestic violence, guns and blades, and we all steal. So they get to watch someone like me and they go, oh shit, she's educated, right? Oh man, she's talking about something that I've experienced. Now you start to break away at these differences, if you will, right? That's what needs to happen. However, it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there and to be willing to take the punches that will come your way. People will say things to me like, oh, you know, you don't have a big label behind you. And I'm like, well, it could happen. I'm just going to need to prove myself just like I did before. And I, I'm, I'll do it. I'm in there. I love what I do. I can't live without it. So I'm in a position where I don't have a choice, Augustus. I, I have to do this, do or die, because it's, it's what my heart asks me for. And so if it succeeds, I'm in a position where I'm on a soapbox now. And I get to tell people, listen. This is what people like me are also like. And by the way, I can also be that other thing you think I am. I, you know, because we all have it in us. Um, and 
by the way, when I, I, I recent, this has only happened to me one time. I do a character named Lupita That's and someone, right. And someone made a comment. Someone made a comment on YouTube on one of my videos. People were giving me all this love. Oh, I love her. She's so funny, blah, blah, freestyle. And then someone wrote, oh, this is what welfare and food stamps brought us. But the joke's on you, buddy, because I happen to be very proud of that history because look at me. There are people born with silver spoons in their mouths that haven't lived the life that I've lived and haven't accomplished the things that I've accomplished in, in, in my short life so far, you know? Um, and by the way, I can love and appreciate you and all your hatred because I know that it's ignorance and I know that it's just not being exposed to enough. Well, most trust fund babies don't accomplish much in life. Right, except for a, a drug addiction for the yeah, most part. We know, you know? that. <laughs> yeah. It's, to me, I mean, it's unfortunate that many of America's talents, black or white and everybody in between, has to go overseas, namely Europe, to make it big, like Labouche or Boney yeah. M. Some, yes. And uh, some of these wonderful uh, talents. And we miss out over here. I mean, they had a big over there and then the music finally comes back to us. And it's like, wow, this is great. You know, and, but what their, their roots are here. So should they have started here and then send it out everywhere else like you are doing? It's kind of unfortunate, you know, that we send many of our talents overseas because of the system, I guess. Yes, and a lot of artists do that. A lot of artists say, well... Successfully, too. I'm going to go to Europe, but well, there's some that say, I'm going to go to Europe and be an import. They're an import into their own country. That's crazy, right? Yeah. But Oxymoron. sometimes, right? Yeah, that sometimes it's the only way they can eat, yeah. you know, an opportunity arises and they go, okay, fine, let, let's, let's go over there. And they become huge stars and they can't get arrested over here. What I'm doing, you know, I've been offered European stuff before. I love Europe. Um, I don't know. Is it ego? Is it because I've already done it here before that I have the belief that I could do it again? And it's, is it harder? Probably, especially if I have access to a European label that will do something with me. But Augustus, this is my home. Exactly. Exactly. You know, this is your this home. Is home. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I'm with you on that. Uh, yeah. battle you know good or bad this is yeah. where we are we're going to plant our tree and, and uh, let it go you know absolutely this is the end of part two we thank you for listening and invite you to tune in the next time for part three meanwhile join our growing family by subscribing to our podcast